This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. The new year is now in February, from now on. So, Happy New Year! Hallelujah. 2020 version (laughs) 2. That's currently what it feels like. eh? Okay, so I'm excited to share with you about understanding the times and uh, welcome to those online joining us online. We were sold out already on Thursday morning. So well done for those of you guys who jumped quickly and like register, register before somebody else take your spot. So well done for that. So I'm psyched about this, uh, this message, and uh, I'm trusting it's going to bring a lot of clarity to our hearts and minds, shift us from fear to faith, from confusion to clarity, and will, I believe, help us in every season of our lives. Okay, so how are we to navigate this complicated season filled with overwhelming numbers of contradicting voices? There's just so many people speaking. COVID-19 has created a perfect storm to give conspiracy theorists a massive platform to spread their side of the story. So every time mankind comes close to something catastrophic, whether it be 9-11, the year 2000, the year 2012, or COVID-19, then the alarmists start shouting, and the conspiracy theories come out of the woodwork, and they declare, they claim it's all a lie. Don't trust anybody. Are they right? Hmm, we're going to unpack it as we go. So the conspiracy theorists claim that it's all a lie, that, you know, what they are telling us, whether it's governments or media or the medical field or pharmaceutical companies or corporations, they're all scheming together to take away people's freedom and to control us and to ultimately do us harm. That's what they are claiming some don't even believe that COVID-19 is real. They don't believe it's real. That's what some people are thinking. Some conspiracy theorists say that 5G, you know what 5G is by now. I'm sure you've received the WhatsApp, the video clips, the info, which is the fifth generation technology standard for broadband cellular networks. So they say 5G and even the COVID-19 vaccines are causing or spreading the COVID-19 virus. That's why there have been some 5G towers that have been burned down. Have you seen that on the news? Thank God, eh? they saved us all by burning down those towers. (laughs) Let's burn some other things as well. (laughs) So some theorize a few things about Bill Gates as well. So the other evening I was sitting in bed and someone sent me another conspiracy theory. I get them, thank you everybody for sending it to me. (laughs) So I was like joking with Sonic. I'm like, okay, watch this. Bill Gates is going to be in this. And the poor man is again going to get it. Lo and behold, it was so. (laughs) I had a good chuckle. But some theorize that Bill Gates is part of a ploy that deliberately released the COVID-19 virus. It seems like whenever you are super rich, and you try to help people, like the Bill Gates Foundation is doing in terms of funding vaccines since the year 2000, then it's all a little bit too sus. All the 16-year-olds will know what I'm talking about. Sus means suspicious. It's all a bit suspicious. It's not what it looks like. There's something behind the scenes happening. So many of these conspiracy theories are completely nonsensical. But for some, it's become their reality to the point that the rest of us, if we don't embrace these perspectives as well, then we are the crazy ones because some, they believe it's, it's true. They claim to know the truth. So the question is, how well, how would we know? Maybe they are right. Maybe we should burn down. No, we don't. Please don't burn down anything. So are governments using the virus as an excuse to control people. What is a biblical response? Okay, so over the next few weeks, we'll unpack it. It's one thing, you know, if people believe some, 
weird things out there. It's another thing if it's Christians, because what's happening is many of the people promoting the conspiracy theories are believers or Christians, and they justify it biblically. So that makes it really important for us to, to talk about it. So as Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, no, Matthew 24 is one of the key passages concerning the end times. We're going to tackle that in two weeks. But he, he said basically, when it comes to the end times, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Okay, so Jesus was already like, guys, I know some of you are going to freak out. Don't be deceived. And then also another passage, Jesus says, I'm sharing these things with you so that you would not stumble that you would not stumble. Okay, so that's why we are tackling this because I, I know God doesn't want you to be deceived, nor me. And also he doesn't want us to stumble. So I'm gonna help us navigate the season and also help you to make decisions in life in general. How, how do you, you know? So sometimes common sense is not so common, but we're gonna, we'll, we'll tackle that in the weeks to come. Okay, so the purpose of the series is to help all of us. How do, we, how do we engage these things? And then if the conspiracy theories are not true, why are there so many Christians believing it? Why are we so gullible? And, and I've been wondering about it, and I realized one of the reasons we tend to be gullible is because of our weak end times theology or eschatology. Okay, that's what they call end times theology, eschatology. The, the, I feel is really, you know, weak. And so we need to upgrade it a little bit. So I have never, in all my years of ministry, I've never done an in-depth teaching series on the end times. I've always just felt, man, it's like a bit of a minefield and it's complicated, so I'm not even going to go there. But I realize if I don't go there, then a lot of other people are going to, fill all of our hearts and minds with some interesting things. And so let me help us to get some balance. I must say I'm loving it. I'm loving getting into what the scriptures actually say. And, and it's bringing a lot of beautiful things to my heart. So I hope it's going to be the same for you. So the question is, how do we make informed decisions? How do we sift between all these things? And I'm sure you are like me as well in this. I hate lies. I hate to be misinformed. I don't like to believe something that is not true because ultimately when it comes out that it wasn't true, then you look like an idiot. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's, it's not great. And it's also bad for our Christian witness. If you, know, you, want to, you want to reach your neighbor, your work colleague, and now you are claiming it's the end, and then it's not the end. What does it do that to, to your Christian witness? It's like, you know, these Christians, Cuckoos, you know, you're like, yeah, they run away, you know. So it's just really, really important for us to get a solid end times theology. And I'm going to challenge us over these weeks. I'm going to go a whole lot of places. I'm going to challenge our, our ways of thinking. So I'm asking you to be open-minded and journey with me. Today, I'm just going to sort of lay a foundation for the way forward. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's ultimately, we want to embrace the truth, and we want to know God's ways. Okay, cool. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get going. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. Your word will stand. And we pray, God, for our hearts, for our minds, and everything we've heard somewhere thus far. God, we just want to put it to the side. And we want to ask God, well, what are you saying? What is your word speaking to us? In the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray for truth to be released into our hearts and also faith and freedom. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so to give you a bit of background, uh, there's a fivefold ministry diagram that... Uh, Sort of our, our, our church's methodology of how, do, of how we do ministry. So there are fivefold ministry cultures that we embrace. And we, in, in all of our, our message series, we sort of build out one or two of these cultures apostolic, prophetic, 
pastoral teaching and evangelistic. So this series will focus more on the teaching, building out the teaching culture, that all of us would value God's word and understand God's word. And also we're going to go to the prophetic because they sort of work together in this series very well. And, uh, but it might not be your primary passion. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into the word. And uh, next week, we're going to focus on relationships. That's more the pastoral, that relationships will flourish. But so hold on. It's your passion will probably come around as we progress. Okay. So we're going to focus more on building on the teaching culture in this series. Now, the word of God, the Bible is the truth. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the truth, but the word of God reveals who God is. And we should look at life through these glasses of what is God's word actually saying. So unfortunately, a lot comes down to also how you interpret the scriptures. Because there's a whole lot of crazy stuff out there that people say is biblical. They justify it through the scriptures. They are cults and sects and weirdos and a lot of weird things. And they say, but the Bible says it. So it's not just believing the Bible is truth. It's how should we interpret the scriptures? Okay, so the truth that I want to start off with will be the, one of the anchors of the series is this. Context is king. Come on, say context. Context is king. In other words, you can't just look at the verse. You need to look at the verse in the context. And then even further in the context of the the whole Bible. But also, this is critical for our lives. Every decision you need to make, you need to ask this question, what's the context? In other words, take a step back. What's the big picture? What's the history? What is the background? How do, what, what is the bigger picture so that you can make an informed decision? Okay, so I've, for those who've watched some of the messages the last few weeks, you will know that I have taken up golf. God help me, please pray for me. I still feel you're not praying enough for me. I really, I'm, I'm like, you need to up your prayer game there. But anyway, so I've been, you know, so some of the guys in church have been helping me to get some secondhand gear. I found myself on Facebook Marketplace. So now you have people selling golf clubs for a few thousand rand. And now you are sitting with a dilemma. I'm not going to pay thousands of rands into a random stranger's bank account. And then they're going to post the golf clubs to you. So you better make a right decision. So the question you need to ask is, what's the context? So you click on the Facebook profile and you check how long has this person been on Facebook? 10 years? How long? And how many friends do they have? Because if... It says profile created one month ago, and they have five weird friends, and the price is just too good, then you run the other direction. It's probably a fake profile. You're going to lose all your money. Don't do it. And you always, you're tempted because it's such a good price, you know, then you're like, ah, don't do it. Step back and run. Context. Another example. Bachelor meets gorgeous girl. Everything about her is just gorgeous. She is just seemingly amazing. Can't find anything wrong. Two weeks into the relationship, they will tell you, and pastor, we don't even fight. Two weeks. <laughs> I'm like, hold your horses. Just stop. Wait, <laughs> I normally tell people at least eight months, date for eight months, that you can see the real he and you can see the real she, and then you need to ask yourself, well, do I want to live with this for the rest of my life with these character flaws or whatever it might be? You know? So again, context, if you don't know the history, you don't really know the person. And then you can't trust yourself because what's happening, your whole hormones is running away with you, so you think like, what? There's nothing wrong. Everything's perfect. No, you're blind. Blinded by love. Actually, hormones. Love starts around five years into marriage when you have kids. Then you find out what real love is. <laughs> ah, sorry, all the singles are now freaking out. What's this guy talking about? Anyway, you'll see. 
<laughs> but context. So that's why when you meet somebody and you know, you know their friends or people that know them, then they can tell you, hey, here's some history about this person. Do you know about these character flaws? Do you know what, you know that you know, this guy was convicted for acts murdering his ex-girlfriend? Do you know that? <laughs> and then you run. Okay, so context. Context is king. History helps us to make an informed decision now. In the same way, if you think COVID-19 is the first crisis the world has ever seen, you're going to make stupid decisions because you have no context. I've been reading history about vaccines and over the last 300 years and the plagues and the epidemics and the number of people that have been dying. Some families lose three of the four kids and the mom because of smallpox and they didn't have vaccines. Now that changes the game immediately when you see the amount of people that have died in ages past because of no vaccines. So that just gives you a different context, you know? Anyway, that's a few weeks from now. Not going to go get into vaccines right now, but we're going to get there. Looking at the science, looking at the history. What is the context? And then suddenly it's like the lights come on. Okay, but so we're going to get there. Context is king. It gives you perspective. So you need to ask a few questions. Here's a few questions. What's the context? What is the bigger picture? What am I missing? What is the history of the issue? And what is influencing my decision-making process? In other words, if you're going for the golf clubs and you're like desperate to have the good deal, you're probably going to make a bad decision. Or if you like hormones running away with you in a relational sense, then you're probably going to make a wrong decision. Or if you're so terrified about what your antichrist is now going to come and knock on your door and they're going to implant the things on your arm, on your forehead, and you're freaking out, there's so much fear, you're probably going to make a bad decision. So step back. Get some context. Okay, so we're gonna, we are going to look at it. So, otherwise, stupid tends to be present. Okay, you don't want stupid present. You want wisdom. You want understanding. You want context. We're talking about understanding the times. Okay, so our theme verse for the series is Isaiah 60, verse 2. And it says, Therefore, behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. And then sometimes people stop right there. There's darkness. There's evil. Yes, 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 there's evil. Yes, there are some crazy people out there that are conspiring and scheming. And they, yes, there's darkness. Yes, there's evil in human hearts. Absolutely. But, come on, say but. But, context. But the Lord. But God. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. I love that. Yes, by the way, there's darkness. Cool. But, but God, God's going to arise upon you. You know, evil loves it when we are obsessed with it. Obsessed with the darkness. What you Behold is what you will become. If you only behold the negatives and the darkness, well, that's what you're going to be. You're going to become unbelieving and fearful and terrified. But if we behold God, the light, then suddenly everything changes. So this is our anchor in this season and every season. But God, the greatness of God. So some people have embraced a theology, an end times theology or eschatology that is extremely dark. It, it's just, man, everything's going to get bad and then it's going to get worse and then it's going to get even worse. That's not a very balanced perspective, biblical perspective, because you're focusing on, yes, there's darkness. Yes, there are issues, but God. And the result of people embracing an extremely negative eschatology that comes, especially in the 1970s, it became extremely popular, the, the you know, that it's the end and, and everything's just going to get worse. And the fruit of that for many people is that, you know, young people didn't go study. We all stepped away from getting involved in society because it's the end. Sell your house. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So we step away from shining our lights in the world because it's so dark and so bad that we step away to protect ourselves, to protect our little candle. Don't blow out, little candle. 
<laughs> no, that's not what the Bible says. So look at the, the, the full verse there, verse 1. It says, arise, shine. I believe there's a prophetic word for every age of the church. Arise and shine, not arise and run for the hills. <laughs> arise and shine. For your light has come. Christ has come and has won the ultimate victory at the cross. Christ has come. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. You see, if you know a bit of history, you will know there has been some seriously dark times over the last couple of centuries. World War I, World War II, and everything around it and in between. There has been seriously bad times. The 1700s, the 1800s, wars upon wars and plagues upon plagues and crises upon crises. And what happens? God shows up. Society went like this and then God comes and then society moves into a better space again. Revival breaks out. People repent. People realize there is no life outside of God. People start going to church again. They start seeking the face of God again. So why not now again? Why not, why not believe that again the glory of the Lord is risen upon us? Verse 2 speaks about that darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. And then verse three, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Even kings, government leaders, CEOs of companies, God wants to reach even the kings with his love. And we are to shine in such a way that they are drawn to the light. My question is, how attractive are we at this stage? We are feeling every, everything is sus. It's suspicious. So if you want to like meet Bill Gates and Bill Gates would, by the way, go onto your Facebook profile and see Bill Gates is the Antichrist or whatever it is now that he's been accused of. He's like, oh, freak. He, he will run the other way. So are we positioning ourselves in a place that we can reach people in influence or are we positioning ourselves in a place where it's just like, we don't trust them. Okay, but two weeks from now, I'm going to, Focus a bit more on that. The great thing about the darkness is that the light shines brighter in the dark. So where it is worse, the darkness is worse, that's probably where God's going to show up more than other places. We see this in nations going through stuff. That is where God shows up. So how about we expect God to move? How about we arise and shine our light and not arise and run for the hills? Amen. You're going to have way more, way more peace in any case. Okay, so what's the context? What's the bigger picture? What does history teach us? The best place to learn about history is the Bible itself. But I'm sure some of you can remember Y2K, the year 2000, the end. It is the end of the world because of these ones and zeros in the computers and they're all going to blow up and the planes are going to fall out of the sky and the robots are going to kill us all or something along those lines. Or the next image speaks about world will end in year 2000, warn Bible scholars. That's just sad. Will anybody trust the Bible scholar again after that? Again, throwing our witness out the door our integrity out the door. Or what, what about 2012? The Mayan calendar was also like, it's the end. It seems like every, every 10 years, at least there's an end of the world moment. And then, do you know that in 1899, the Chris Christians sponsored newspaper ads warning that Jesus was about to return like they did in 1999. It's like every, every century, every decade is going to be something. So what happened was also in, in the 20th century, many prophecy teachers wrongly interpreted Jesus as saying that he would return within a 40-year generation of 1948 after Israel was established again as a nation. Hence, by 1988, 
So in 1988, Edgar Wiseman wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, those who don't know what the rapture is, the rapture is supposedly when Jesus first comes back for the church and then all the real believers disappear and the rest of the world have the shock of their lives. And then while we feast in heaven, everybody goes through hell here on earth. Yay! <laughs> anyway, we're going to tackle the rapture as well uh, a month or so from now. But this guy wrote this book and he sold 3 million copies. I think I should do that, do that as well. Eh? <laughs> 21 reasons why it's the end now in 2021. But anyway, so he wrote the book, and then as I, as I understand it, by the end of 1988, in the bookshops, Christian bookshops, the book owners would, or the bookshop owners would tell the salespeople, get these books sold by the 31st of December, otherwise it's not going to sell. So they really pushed the book to get sold, and then this guy wrote an updated edition for 1989. Praise God, it didn't sell very well. I wonder why. But they have found that people tend only to be deceived once by one author and then they move on. Okay, but there's normally another one to be deceived by in the next year. Okay, so not 88 reasons why the rapture, you know. So it's just like, ish. So prophecy teaching has been a major pastime since the late 1800s. And interpretations have changed regularly as newspaper headlines change. So like newspaper headlines, they sometimes fail to anticipate some major events, such as the collapse of the Soviet Union. And like horoscopes, they, though they are right sometimes. It is one thing to say, current events might fit God's plans, or this fits the ways that God works in history. You can say that. Well, if we're looking at current things, this is sort of how God works in these seasons. But it's quite another to try to match them point for point as if biblical texts were predicting our generation's newspaper headlines. In other words, you can't go to the Bible and say, man, this headline has now just been confirmed by this verse in the book of Revelation. Because that's what they said last decade and the previous century and the previous century and 300 AD as well. Everybody tries to reinterpret the text according to their current scenario. And the truth is, every generation has been wrong. Okay, so that's very important. If you want to, I believe that's wise advice, and it will also protect our Christian witness. Okay, but I'm going to, so as we go, we'll unpack it and explain some more about that. So the first truth is this, context is king. Truth number two. Context is king, but Christ is king, and Christ is king of kings. Okay, so in this season, I'm just taking a step back before we go into the details in the coming weeks. The big picture is Jesus Christ is king of kings. So past, present, and future is all now for God. It's all now. He sees it all right now. And he is king of kings and he's reigning from the throne of heaven. So in other words, Jesus is enthroned. He's, in, he's enthroned. COVID-19 has not caused Jesus to fall off his throne. Amen? But sometimes it feels like the way we respond is like, oh, Jesus just fell off his throne. He didn't expect this. No, he's still enthroned. He's still reigning from heaven above. So God is in charge, but... Um, he's not in control of everything. So I'll explain in a moment. Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 10. Love this so powerful scripture. It says, remember the former things of old. This is God prophetically speaking, speaking through the prophet, encouraging you and me to get the context. Context is king. He's saying there, remember the former things of old. Get context of what has been in the past. Remember, I am the creator. Remember, I've made everything. Remember who I am. He says there, for I am God and there is no other. I mean, it's like Psalm chapter two, where it speaks about all the scheming of mankind. What, what is God's response 
towards all the scheming. It says, and God sits in the heavens and he laughs. So even if there are conspiracies, even if they're scheming, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. It's like, really? Do you really think that people can outmaneuver the King of kings and the Lord of lords? He says, I am God and there's no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Okay, so it says there he declares the end from the beginning. So what does that mean? It means like God first finishes something and then he goes back and he starts. I love that. He first finishes it. He goes all the way to the end. He closes everything out and says, this is what it looks like at the end. So we know the outcome. Now let's start. Let's get, let's do this. In the same way, that's what God does for your life. He plans your life. He works out a brilliant plan for your life. And now he says, hey, come, let's walk this journey. Walk with me on this brilliant path, this beautiful path that I have planned for you. And God says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Okay, so God is in charge. His word and will will be done, but he's not in control of everything. Illustration, all the parents in the house should understand. You in charge, I hope, in your home, but the kids, you, don't, you can't control them. They might kick a ball through the window. They might break something down. They might pull one another's hair. You are in charge, but not in control. In the same way, God is in charge on this planet, but he's not in control of everything we do. You and I need to decide, well, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to pursue God's ways so that it, I can be blessed and those around me. Okay, you get it? That's God's in charge, but he's not in control. So you and I need to know our history and get an idea of, the, of, of, of how God has worked over the ages. So I want to take you to the book of Daniel. Before we go to the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, I want to show you some incredible prophecies that have been fulfilled in history, we know for a fact it has been fulfilled. Incredibly specific and accurate prophecies that I hope will stir your faith that when God speaks, it shall be, and that Jesus Christ truly is the King of Kings, the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah. Okay, some quick context this is around 550 BC. Um, the, the, the Jews have been um, exiled into Babylon. Daniel is there in Babylon, and uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonian armies. And now Daniel prays to God, and an angel comes and appears to Daniel to reveal to him what is coming. So Daniel 9, verse 20, it says, I went on praying, this is Daniel, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. So he's praying about Jerusalem. He's praying about his nation. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. See, that's God's heart. He wants to give us understanding of the times and of what's coming. Verse 23, the moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I am here to tell you what it was. For you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of the vision. God wants to give us understanding of the times. Verse 24. So here comes the prophecy of what is coming. It says 70 weeks. So those 70 weeks, every week represents ultimately seven years. That's one of the interpretations of it. 70 times seven, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. He was praying about Jerusalem, he was praying about the city Jerusalem, and now God speaks to him. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore, and understand that from the going forth 
of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks, seven times seven, plus 62 weeks, 62 times seven. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So the angel reveals when the clock begins to tick. He says from the, you can put on the diagram, give an overview. So in 445 BC, the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah said, now go and rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. That's 445 BC. If you now add up all those weeks in terms of years, then you get to 483 years. So one of the interpretations of this is that that would bring it exactly from the moment Artaxerxes made the decree to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ around 32 AD on March the 30th, on the day where the Messiah reveals himself as he enters Jerusalem on the donkey. Okay? 483 years until the Messiah comes. So Sir Robert Anderson he wrote a significant work called The Coming Prince, and he literally broke it down to 172,880 days from the decree to the triumphal entry. There's different opinions about it, but this is one of the views, and it's really quite amazing to see how it plays out. This, this, the clarity or the specificity of this prophecy has caused some Jewish scholars to be compelled to confess that Jesus is the Messiah that has already come and that was crucified for our sins. And we see this in the next verse. In Daniel 9, 26, it gives us even more context. It says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, so you had the first seven times seven, now plus 62 times seven, 438 years or 483 years, it says the anointed one, the Messiah, will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. I mean, dying on a cross, crucified, it appears like not much was achieved, although we know it's the ultimate victory. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. As in 70 AD, after Christ, the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, was broken down to the ground. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. And we see that from where Jesus was crucified over that next 40 years until 70 AD, there was incredible wars and famines and chaos. It was one of the most turbulent times in the history of the world, those 30, 40 years. And then the end was 70 AD and Jerusalem and the temple was Destroyed. Do you see it there? So God declares the end in terms of Jerusalem from the beginning, and then it came to pass. Okay, so now let's look at what Jesus said. I want to show you that Jesus being the Messiah, the King of Kings, that his words came to pass powerfully. Luke 19, verse 41. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it. This is Jesus seeing Jerusalem. And he wept because he knew what was coming. And, and, and the point also is God does not desire judgment. He desires mercy. He desires mercy. And then verse 42 saying, if you had known Jerusalem, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now is that for clear prophecy of what is coming. And I believe it was not God's will for that to happen. It was the, the building up of their sins over all of those ages, in a sense, until it was. And they didn't repent. They didn't turn. 
Now, amazing, I'm reading this book by Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, like 500 plus pages about that whole season and all the wars and everything that happened, building up to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And so basically what they say, as Jesus prophesied, they will close you in on every side. So the Roman armies under General Titus, they built a nine mile long wall around Jerusalem in three days. You can put on the picture of the, of the temple there. So within three days, they built the wall around. They so absolutely surrounded it that no one would be able to get out. There's been wars for like five, six, seven years all over Israel. So people fled to Jerusalem because of the massive, massive walls. It was almost an impenetrable fortress. So everybody fled there for safety. And then it was Passover. So more people came. So it's like 1.5 million people in the city. And then the armies came and surrounded the city and no one got out. And then the worst is it that the, the better leaders were killed. And there were three factions. They were like these scoundrels, wicked, wicked people that were leading the different factions in the city. So they were slaughtering one another in the city burning up one another's food storage places. So people were dying and they were actually doing it to themselves. The, the general many times said, guys, we will allow you to come out if you, if you give up, up, give over. And they didn't want to. He even at a few places, the, the one grouping of, of, of these scoundrels and, and, and mercenaries, they, they made the temple itself their fortress and they fought from there. And then when the armies came in, the, the generals said, guys, if you move, we'll fight over there. We don't want to destroy your temple. Just, <laughs> but they were like bent on self-destruction. It's a fascinating read. The result is, it's probably one of the worst the worst siege in terms of the percentage of people who died in a city. 1.1 million people perished. 100,000 slaves. It was absolute carnage. Judgment. Judgment. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take to place or come to pass. And that's what happened in Matthew 24. The city was destroyed and it was it was wild. But again, God speaks, comes to pass. God comes and he gives opportunities to repent, opportunities for mercy. And yet we need to make a decision. Are we going to receive it? Are we going to follow God? Are we going to repent? Are we going to do it God's way? Right. So that's just a very positive ending, isn't it? <laughs> so no, we're going to end every message with a uh, overcoming scripture from the book of Revelation. So I'm ending off with this, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 to 11. As I said, context is king. Now before I read that, there are two ways in watching a rugby match. And there's always also two ways of looking at end times theology. The one way is... You watch the game and you stress right through, all the way through. It doesn't look like you're going to win. It looks terrible. Ah, oh, oh, we're losing. And you're stressed up and you're freaked out and you just don't know what's coming and you, it's stressful. Another way, better way is to watch rugby as follows. You record it on your PVR. You get the score before you watch. You realize we win. You take out your appetizer and you watch the game, unstressed, unfazed, even though it looks like we're losing. The scoreboard doesn't look good. It's five minutes before the end. We need three tries. Oh, my word. I have no idea how we're going to do it. But we, I know we win. So somehow the guys are going to score the try. And yes, we win. That's how we need to engage with the end times. Guys, we win. We win. Jesus has won it. He's the cornerstone. He's reigning from heaven above. He is not confused. He's God almighty. He declares the end from the beginning. His word shall come to pass. 
And then this prophecy, this word, I believe in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, is for your life, for my life, for the body of Christ, for the bride of Christ in this season. And this, I believe, is from the moment Jesus was risen from the dead. This is the word of God. It says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now, come on, say now. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. Now salvation, now the kingdom of God, now the power of God, now. This is the era, this is the season that we are in, a season of overcoming. And then this, verse 11. This is a prophecy that God, who is in eternity, who sees the future right now, and he looked into the future, and then he prophesied your life, my life, the bride of Christ. And he said, and they, that's you, that's me, that's us, and they overcame by the blood of the Lamb already. You're at the start of 2021 and God is prophesying over you for this year and they overcame. I love that. They overcame. How? By the blood of the lamb, the victory of Christ at the cross and by the word of their testimony, by our witness declaring who our God is and what he has done. And lastly, they did not love their lives to the death. So he's saying that they That's you, that's me, that's us. They overcame. 2021, you have overcome. 2024, already you have overcome. God declares this over you. But you need to embrace those three things. Standing on the victory of Christ. We fight from victory, not for victory. We're standing on his word, declaring who he is and what God is gonna do. A witness of who our God is. He's faithful, he's powerful. He's our protector. He's our provider. He is faithful. And then lastly, and this is the difficult one, they did not love their lives to the death. So how does this work? Yeah, I think COVID, this season of COVID has taught me one thing at least, and it is this, let go. <laughs> let go of control. Lay everything down. This is God's church. Our lives belong to Him. And He is faithful. So if there's one thing that you and I need to do is we need to lay down our lives. Lay down our finances, our possessions. All the things that stress us up. All the things that makes us afraid about the future. Even death itself. It's not a threat to a true believer. It only becomes a threat when we so bound by the things of this world, that this world becomes our everything instead of heaven being home. As I often said, you can't threaten a Christian with heaven. Amen. So the result is even as Christians, believers, we're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of sickness. It's like over the years, you know, (laughs) when Sonica would get sick, you know, when, she, when she, she gets sick, then she really wants me to, you know, hold her and be close to her. And I'm like, <laughs> it's a disaster. It makes her even sicker. You know, so I'm like lying on this side of the bed with my back to her because don't touch me. I don't want to get sick. <laughs> and so a few years ago, I just realized, nah, not, I'm not afraid of sickness either. You know, what the heck? Come, he's so leafy. Come, leave him. You know, just whatever. You know, I'm just like, I, I won't allow fear. Whatever it is, I, I won't allow fear in. So I, this is what I do often. I just, Lord, give you my life. Ah, that person might have COVID. Ah, but give you my life. <laughs> You're greater than this, Lord. You're stronger. You, you're my source. You, you've, you've ordained my destiny as he has for every one of us. He ordains your destiny. Lay it down. Don't allow all these other things to bind you to the point where you don't have perspective and you can't step back and just see the big picture.
we win. Hallelujah. Like Go Boca, World Cup, we win. Amen. Praise God. So context is king, and Jesus is the king of kings. We will fear nothing. We will fear no one, not even the Antichrist himself. But I'm going to unpack it for you as we go. So worship team, join us on stage. And if you guys can please stand with me. I want to just highlight the one thing as we end off, as we're going to pray now. I want to highlight the one thing that, that Jesus spoke over Jerusalem. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If you had known, if you had known who is standing here before you, if you had known that in Jesus' case that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God has come to redeem you and to bless you and to pour out mercy upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. If you had known, you would have turned. And in the same way, I feel God is wanting to emphasize this for our lives. The reality is if we turn away from Jesus, if we live contrary to Christ, there are consequences. Isn't God's primary will for us? It's not his will for us in terms of judgment or pain or disappointment or hurts. But that is the outflow of disobedience and rebellion towards God. You know, I know there's some people that believe they know that God doesn't do judgment anymore, but I'm sorry. That's Jesus' own words. A whole a city. That's after the cross, after the resurrection, a whole city destroyed, 1.1 million people. They brought it upon themselves because they didn't want to turn to God. So I want to ask us, how's your lifestyle? Are you following him? Are you obeying him? Is he the king of kings of your life? Not just have you prayed a little prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. Are you living it? Are you following him? Because that's the shift, that's, the, that's repentance, the realignment of our lives. That for me is the message of the end times. Those who follow Christ, they are protected, they sealed. Those who do not, they experience pain, unnecessary pain. So that's the one thing I want to ask us. Do you need to turn? Do you need to turn your heart, your life to him? Even if you've been a believer for 30 years, it's just, are you aligning your life? And then the second thing, is there some things that you need to lay down? Laying down your life even unto death. Do you, are there things you need to lay down? Your fear of sickness, fear of future finances, or whatever it might be, anything that's holding you, you back to let go of control. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.